Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Kanas Albinas, Makalua, the main team, Mega Bears fan. With guest co host, the Chris D. Ah, yeah, the stream is back on. It's All right, so like, are we ready to go then? You're uh, good. I believe so. Well, hello, Internet. And after some technical difficulties, we are the Polycast, episode 400 and uh, what is it, 411. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Mega Bears fan, joined as usual by Makalua. Vroom weekend. The me and team. This is not the trading insult modifier I was pursuing. And guest co-host, the Chris D. I'm surprised, Mike, he's not here and currently watching the vrooming. It doesn't come on until two, so, you know. Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> and if you were tuned in a few minutes ago when we first tried doing the stream, uh, I apologize for that. We had some technical difficulties. Canis is out sick, and Canis usually handles the recording, so I tried doing it this week, and for some reason, OBS and uh, Discord did not want to cooperate. So Canis uh, showed up to save us, thankfully, but uh, with the... Uh, with regard to the um, recording and broadcasting, but will not be joining us for the actual conversation. So, but here we are. It's working now. Hooray. Saved. Yay. And so off we go. With Nat's topic, perhaps, Becky. Yeah, because apparently there's. Would you would would you like to have Doom and Civilization meet each other? Because apparently, <laughs> apparently somebody thought this was a great idea. There's a first combination I would have expected, but okay. <laughs> I mean, I think at some point everything crosses, every game genre crosses over with Doom, right? Like, isn't that just how it works? And you try to run Doom on everything, including like a tiny little watch, you know. From what I was reading in the article, though, it was saying that they're taking a more like classical hell approach than like like recognizable characters from the Doom franchise, per se. I guess that was a quick shorthand for gamers to say this is set in hell. Yeah. Uh, now it's the name, right? Solium Infernum? I think I'm doing Solium, right? Well, so, it's that's close enough. Yeah. Apparently set in a bureaucratic nightmare of hell. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> so it to be clear, is it actually like... The Doom IP, or it's just like a it, TBS. It looks like it isn't. Yeah, just a TBS set in hell. TBS set in hell. Yeah. They're just using the Doom thing as a shorthand to give you an idea of uh, what to expect in terms of the theming. Yeah, that's know. what I figured from the description and the screenshots I'm seeing, but I just wanted to double check to make sure I was correct. Now, the aesthetic for me is less attractive than historical or space. But that being said, because you are playing as things in hell, I am sure that, that that opens the game to mechanics and cruelty that would normally not be acceptable. So I don't know, maybe they can do something interested with, interesting with this, but I would need to see more personally. Yeah, uh, it, but... does, it does say they're trying to balance it so you're spending, uh, say that normally games spend 80% of the time on the board and 20% on diplomacy, and they're doing the opposite. They only want you spending like 20% of the time on the board and 80% of the time on the diplomacy part. Well, I mean, I don't know how that'll play, but it's good to try to be different than just making another Civ 6, I guess. 
Yeah, the first thing I thought of when I heard this was uh, I was imagining uh, Shadow of Mordor, but as a, a turn-based strategy. So you know, with all of, like the orcs infighting and all that stuff, that that's that's what my my imagination immediately went to thinking about like factions of demons fighting each other in hell. Yeah, I thought though the diplomacy against AIs is like never great though. Uh, has there ever like been a game where you can actually have decent diplomacy with an AI that's where they aren't kind of fixed onto some weird kind of or they value things so weirdly that you can't really get a, a fair deal or a fair trade with them? The only time I've seen it done and it felt like it didn't feel awful was when it was so simplistic that even the AI could handle it. Uh, something like the Warlord series, because the whole game was about conquering the board. Uh, the only diplomacy right now is are you at war or not? And the AI was okay at like not going in and unscrewing itself right away. <laughs> it makes me wonder how they're going to manage us here without, without, you know, within a few games, you suddenly realize that the AI is like terrible at deciding, you know, what to trade, yeah. when to peace, when to fight, and suddenly, or I mean, we, we all see it in Civ as it is. And it's like you completely just, you know, half destroyed half an AI's empire, and you try and ask for even some sense of peace, and you're like, no, we're not done yet. Well, they are, I guess, like demons from hell, so that would at least seem to be in character. Yeah, but if you want to consistently be in character, then you really are going to have to build the diplomacy system well, because if you're emphasizing that, and the entire motif is how these demons from hell are behaving. Man, if it starts behaving like a random AI from Civ 6, it's going to be off-putting. <laughs> we don't really want uh, want half measures then. Yeah, I don't know. I can't think of a good, uh, a strong AI Diplo setting. And now this might be primarily being designed for multiplayer, and they just have like AI there, so you have something to play with if you have nobody uh, who's available or you're just trying to learn or whatever. Uh, the Dominions 5 is like that. Dominions 5's an offline experience is nothing compared to playing with other players because the game is so complex and you know they didn't like take a machine learning ai to it so the ai absolutely blows at that game and there's no diplomacy with ai at all whereas with players that can get complex too because it's mostly player run so yeah maybe they're maybe they're going for like creating a system whereby human beings interacting with each other can uh, make for a good game uh, if it's mostly diplomacy they do mention later on that it can be played asynchronous pvp over time based on you know log in do your turn and then other players can log in and do their turns at some point yeah assuming you want to stretch one of them out like a pbm yeah it's really, always nice one of my little wish list items on that topic is i always wish that you could um uh transfer the game from like you know the play by email kind of thing to uh like playing real time together and you know back and forth so that you can like you know start the game playing live together and then you know because these games tend to run pretty long if you get to the point where you can't both keep playing anymore transition it to a you know play by turns or play by emails kind of thing and then you know when you're able to both meet up again then go back to playing live together that would be very nice the other alternative would be to have something that resembles the old pit boss servers with timers so that like if everyone's actually physically at the session and they all end their turn it'll just roll uh, but otherwise, it rolls on a timer. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the things that always kept me from playing more multiplayer Civ with my friends was, you know, we'd like log in for like a couple hours on like a Friday night and we get through maybe like the medieval era. And then it's like, oh, well, someone's got to, you know, go to bed or, you know, make dinner or, or something, you know, oftentimes in different time zones. So we got to log off 
And then it's like, okay, well, it'd be nice if we could continue playing this game, you know, one turn at a time, but we can't. So then we just never get around to continuing the game. Well, see, you should you should join me in the hellscape that is Dominion's five multiplayer world. Because <laughs> that's usually about a turn a day. And as the turns get later, you often get two days or three days. Yeah, well, it doesn't look like it's typical Civ diplomacy because they're also talking about these vendettas and there's a whole prestige thing. It does, I mean, it's going to depend on how the AI treats it. I mean, this sounds like it's going to work great if you have other humans doing, you know, but I don't know how it's going to do with the AI. Yeah. Not doing like primary multiplayer is a risk, but I I could respect it if that's the, if you're trying to make a diplomacy based game, that's probably your best bet right now. I mean, the part that basically the AI will just basically make demands nonstop. (laughs) Yeah. And there's like other, like what they're talking about one of the win conditions here. Like there's a, Thing you can scheme you can select called power behind the throne you're playing together and it may you you make it look like you're helping the other person but when the game actually gets to the end they think they've won you won because you betray them there's there's whole levels of messing with the other players there that i hadn't thought of it does the other what was the other thing about the map it loops all the way around loops loops north south and loops east west so you really can't dig yourself into a corner Wait, no corners what is this <laughs> yeah wait what the world is a donut again you cannot get away from the donut maps. Well, anything else we want to say about this? I don't think, other than just that uh, turn-based strategy is, uh, genre is getting awfully crowded now. Yeah, it's good. We'll see how it goes. It's getting hard to play all of them. So our next topic is uh, apparently a bit of an older article by uh, Richard Kobet uh, comparing Alpha Centauri to Beyond Earth on PC Gamer. And... Uh, I don't know if I want to take us through the entire article, but the the gist is that the 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 person's kind of hoping for something more along the feel of Alpha Centauri, but Beyond Earth is more like Civ in space, and uh, I feel like that's a lot of people's sentiment that they miss the flair of the old game. It's not turn based precisely, but uh, Terra Invicta that's out in early access does have a little bit of a Alpha Centauri feel with their quotes and stuff for when you get technologies. <laughs> but the people behind it are actually the people that did the long war mod for XCOM. So, oh, well, there you go. It is definitely more XCOM like in the sense you're trying to battle back the aliens as opposed to trying to get along with native life. It, it, it was interesting because I went and watching because a bunch of people have been playing it lately, streaming it. And uh, it's got some of the feel, even though it's not a turn based game. I think one of the main things I spotted in that article was the the biggest comparison, what it, or the way they were saying, was that Alpha Centauri has story, but Beyond Earth has lore. Yeah, I highlighted that line as well. Yeah, yeah. Alpha Centauri was very good about creating an emergent story, and uh, Beyond Earth not so much. Yeah, Beyond Earth, you kind of basically you had the back, or you had the the backstory behind each of the uh, behind each of the saves per se in Beyond Earth. But it didn't really make much of a difference once you got into the game. It just played out like a standard kind of game of Civ in space with different effects. Whereas, even though I never played Elsentor, I think I did watch a, a Let's Play of it once. And as it was going through, like you could actually tell that you know each kind of faction, as it were, kind of reacted differently. And yes. Beyond Beyond Earth was never also very never very good at like establishing why all of these different corporations are like in conflict with one another to begin with and why you can't all just cooperate to colonize the planet 
like you know they, they make a big deal about the great mistake that like ruined earth and then you know beyond earth has this very nihilistic feel where it's just like okay so you just go to a planet and do it all again wonderful humanity has learned nothing I feel like that's a concept that maybe they wanted to do more with than they actually accomplished with the great mistake. You mean that they they wanted to do more with it? And yeah, like they wanted to to, uh, to like tie it into the game better. Like the player could discover, uh, or could like come to different conclusions based on you know what progressed in the game or whatever. Yeah, or like maybe but, getting like the victory condition where you go back to Earth instead of going back and sending your army through to like you know, install martial law, like the victory would be figuring out what the hell happened to Earth. Yeah. And both of those could be the nation perceiving that it corrected the great mistake. So you can like infer different things <laughs> depending on uh, who you're playing. Yeah, I, I never actually played Alpha Centauri, unfortunately, but I've, I've always gotten the impression that, you know, the conflict that's inherent between the different factions, like, felt more believable because they're just ideologically incompatible with one another. But I, I don't get that same feeling from Beyond Earth's factions, where, you know, they are all just corporations. Like, I feel like with some tweaks, Beyond Earth could have been more like that. Like, they could have mechanically hammed up each of the personalities of the people in terms of their in-game choices uh, of how they behave more. Yeah, well, they were trying to go more with, like, emergent personalities where they develop their ideology over the course of the game with the three various, uh, what were they called, affinities. Oh, that's and, fine, uh, but then, like, yeah. make them go, like, over the top with it. Like, that would be more amusing, in my opinion. Now, maybe the designer saw it other way, otherwise. Yeah, in my experience, almost everyone always seemed to just have some mix of, you know, two and sometimes even all three of the affinities. No one ever went, like, full-blown, like you know, hardcore fundamentalist down one path to where it feels mutually exclusive with the other civilizations ideologies. It, it always felt like everyone was just compromising in one way or another. So, you know, nobody really had very strong convictions to begin with. And that does tie into the game's overall lack of personality. Yeah. Whereas the characters in Alpha Centauri are definitely very, <laughs> have very strong convictions. Yeah, like it would have been nice if, you know, Brasilia being the one that was kind of focused on fighting and all that was actually to go maybe hardcore purity and be constantly at war with you and being like, oh, I'm going to go back and I'm going to cleanse the earth. And we're <laughs> going to rule this new, earth, this new planet with iron fists and all that. But you never really get that. Either that guy <laughs> or supremacy, because you could do the same thing with supremacy. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's the other thing. Supremacy and purity are sometimes a bit... Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Like, well, again, they, that could have been fleshed out more in terms of, like, how you play your cities and stuff like where you actually care about how your people feel with purity because they're actually still people where with supremacy you're increasingly less so <laughs> as you get further down the tech tree with some yeah. trade-offs there yeah like even with uh even with civilization like most of the civs in the game have a very strong bias towards you know like one or two victory conditions there's there's not a whole lot of civs in civ 5 and civ 6 where like their bonuses like are just kind of universally beneficial and don't really bias the sieve in, towards one victory or another. But with Beyond Earth, they very much pushed hard on developing that ideology for any sieve in any direction you want. So none of the, you know, well, they're not sieves, they're corporations. Uh, so none of these corporate leaders, you know, like I said, ever feel like they have any inherent bias towards one ideology or the other. So yeah, they just always kind of 
just like whatever they stumble into, that's what they go with. And usually it's some kind of hodgepodge of, you know, two of them. Yeah, I think that's the problem. They they made it so that each corp could basically go into the, you know, a full web of, you know, depending on which of the affinities you go through over the game and the victory condition you kind of focus for, it would develop in a different way and figure out how your civ will react, but they never really went that far. They kind of, they laid the groundwork for it, but they didn't really flesh it out. Yeah, and especially since a lot of the technologies on the technology web were for, like, exploiting resources, and, you know, just to get better tile yields, you're going to want to exploit every resource that's available to you, so you're gonna research the text in every direction on the web so that you can unlock and exploit all of the different resources which means you're going to have a mixture of you know all these different affinities like it's not like they had a you know system where you're literally like terraforming the planet to like be your uh you know what you want to do with it like you you know, and then overriding the resources that are already there because they're just useless to you. Like they, they never quite went that far with it. I think there there are ways later in the game where you can, you know, like add or remove certain resources, but it's it's not something that came up very often in the game. But it's been a while since I played it, so it's hard to remember all of the uh, the details. I, I think you could have like bonus resources show up with specific satellites, but the obviously it's just the strategics you were kind of stuck with. Yeah, it was basically just the. Case the... And six. Yeah, there's basically just the, the miasma or the miasmata or whatever they called it, where, yeah, you remove that unless you just happen to be, you know, so far down the, uh, uh, oh gosh, what was it, the harmony tree where, like, it's actually beneficial to you, and then, like, there's ways to put it back on the map. But, yeah, like, other than that, like, you're not really terraforming the planet, uh, like, in the same way that you might in Alpha Centauri or, you know, if they, they really went hardcore down these uh, ideology paths. Yeah, I know that's like in Alpha Centauri, there was a lot of different terraform you can do, and whether it was even just by going through as normally, or I think, wasn't there even a case of like combat could even like change the ground? I don't well, know, I well the planet monsters certainly could terraform a three face. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> terraform a new whole big crater lake. Oh, yeah, that, that used will to be change the, the ground, so sure. Fun. Yeah, it would be cool if Beyond Earth had had like sci fi technologies that let you just like level mountain ranges you know, and, and turn them into, like, farms or, or whatever. Or, like, actually create, you know, canyons because you're cracking into the earth to get to more uh, uh, geothermal energy or whatever. Like, yeah, if you could do cool stuff like that, I think there would have that would have gone a long way towards, you know, making, um, you know, the, the way these corporations develop feel more distinct and in conflict with one another. Because, you know, if, if one co corporation over here is leveling mountains and, you know, creating canyons and cracking open literally cracking open the planet and you know you have a, another you know corporation that actually is trying to like coexist with the natural habitat then yes that would put them in fundamental conflict with one another in ways that you just don't see in the actual game the way it ended up yeah <clears throat> one of the things alpha story had was that deformable terrain which is what made the terraforming more interesting but i don't maybe they couldn't Maybe it was too high of a level of complexity to try and do that in a modern game with everything else. I don't know. I think I think in Beyond Earth they were probably starting off the Civ Five base or something like that. And yeah, instead of trying to, yeah, instead of trying to write a whole new set of code. It's always a tough pill to swallow when, like, you see something that was done in a game like 15, 20 years ago, and then developers nowadays are saying that it's not technically feasible to do anymore. And it's like, <laughs> but, but. But we were doing it on floppy disks. I mean, what the heck? Yeah. 
mean, you got to think about it. It took us until Civ Six Gathering Storm before even the ground could adjust ever so slightly. Yeah, we we hear that crap all the time, and uh, you know, for for example, you know, once again, like Madden, all the time, EA is saying, "Oh, it's not technically feasible for us to have referee models on the field." It's like, but but PlayStation One versions of the game did that. Like, what do you mean it's not technically feasible? Well, that one sounds more like an excuse of we just don't want to code that. I can understand them not getting the deformable terrain in because I'm still amazed they got it in in the first place in the original of Satori. Yeah. Oh, no. So so many excuses like that. We can't have referees. We can't do the Pro Bowl. For years, they said they couldn't do the Pro Bowl because it was too technically demanding to have all the different team helmets loaded at once until one year they did it. And it wasn't technically infeasible anymore. And it's like, oh, come on. That's called we didn't feel like bothering to use the memory to do that or something. I don't yeah, know. exactly. So I'm, I'm sure there are things, you know, real examples where things are actually technically harder to do. And uh, and technologies do change. Like, I actually remember reading that uh, when the Silent Hill HD collection came out, uh, one of the big complaints with it was that the fog just didn't look as thick and oppressive, you know, as it did on like the classic PS2 games. And one of the excuses that the developers gave or reasons that the developers gave was that the PS2 actually handled transparent textures differently at like, you know, an underlying technical level compared to the more modern uh, consoles. So the fact that they just copied the PS2 code and uh, assets and stuff like that meant that they ended up with less convincing looking fog because the actual hardware like rendered it differently. And it's like, okay, like, I guess I can kind of buy that. But, like, then, you know, maybe you shouldn't have been running off that old code. Yeah, go back and tweak us, like, up the, tra- up the opacity slightly. Yeah, I mean, I think Konami gave them, like, six months to slap it together, so... <laughs> I was going to say that probably would require time so, and money that we yeah, didn't want to spend for a remake. That's a project management issue on the uh, publisher. I'm not going to hold the uh, developer responsible for not being able to do stuff like that. That and the fact that they were, were never given final game code to begin with because konami was incompetent and lost it so they had to work off of buggy pc port beta code which was a uh, not a good way to start a project i'm sure but i digress anything anyone else wants to say about alpha centauri or beyond earth i think we're good so Well, then, from old Civ games, I guess, to the potential of new Civ games or DLC, there is a uh, thread on Civ Fanatics titled Two New DLCs of Civilization VI After NFP? This was uh, started by the user Flakteen, and it shows the uh, Steam database that as of... uh, Oh, gosh, when was this posted? So this was posted on October 1st. So I guess on September 30th, uh, two new items showed up for the Civ 6 database in Steam uh, that both say unknown app and then have, uh, say, test and then a series of letters. One is LPGN and one is LPJ. And people are speculating on whether or not this means we might be getting new DLC, which would be a total surprise to me, considering that we've had like multiple like platinum edition packages of the game and anniversary editions and 
uh, I don't know, seemed to me like Praxis and 2K were done with Civ 6. Yeah, it seemed like we were in the waiting period for Civ 7 to be announced, not for more DLC at this point. And all the bug fixing has been around the launcher. Uh. Yeah, no, that, that does, I do, am curious, do patches show up in the database like this? Because I was under the impression that these database entries are only for, like, DLC things that you, like, purchase even if they end up being free DLC, it's like a different pipeline than releasing a patch. So exactly do, yes. do patches show up in this date in these databases dumps like this? Not like this, no. If you're looking in the Steam DB list and you're looking in the DLC section, yeah, that's pretty much for additional add-on contents that is only that you have to basically acquire a separate license for in order to make use of. Yes, yeah, yeah very very yeah. good explanation. Uh now, now whether this is actually DLC or it could even it could just be some random like promotional unit skin or something that you download that's also a possibility or some different sort of upgrade pack for people that didn't get platinum edition or something like that like if some sort of a, an a, a upgrade to platinum edition that would have everything in it or something yeah actually that that makes a lot of sense i think those things are listed as uh, collections or somewhere i'm not sure if they're in the actual dlc list i could be wrong though it's been a while since i've stared on a steam db list of a game so anyway, it seems unlikely that this would just be a patch. So, but then again, the name in the database also says test in it, which seems like a weird name for your DLC. Uh, so I wonder if maybe this is, you know, something, some test, you know, code repository that maybe accidentally got pushed to the Steam database. I don't know. Well, it can be pushed to the, it can be pushed on Steam and then limited to who gets access to it through either um, manually generated keys that are handed to specific accounts or through a beta branch. So these are it's possible it is there for developers or for testing purposes. I wonder if it could also maybe be some kind of like modding new modding tools. Maybe now that the game is complete, maybe their Fraxis and 2K are going to be more willing to release. Um, more uh robust modding tools like because we still i don't think ever got the the dll modding so maybe they decided to go ahead and give it to us and that's what this is who knows yeah there's a lot of people hopeful for that according to the poll that's up there and that i get yeah that would make more sense with the test name if it's if it's a modding tool as opposed to like actual game content i'm going through some of the posts on us and they're spread around but some people are kind of having some good uh Kind of summarizing us, like I think there's a post from the eighth, from the eighth, from user ego pursuit, where it's been kind of going through us and saying, you know, we've had two DLCs added with their associated depots, and a QA build was updated twice prior to their addition. And QA build update includes new manifests, which includes all the depots, which can include these two new ones. So it could be it is currently on a QA build that might be released to the public. Now, as for the content, who knows? That's the other thing. As I said, it could literally be anything from it could be soundtrack, it could be. I think there's some other posts where it could be, you know, new natural wonders, new resources, new units, that sort of thing. Or it could be just as just as small as the skin like the uh, Scout Cat. But like you said, it would still presumably be something that players would need a separate license to acquire. So it's yeah. it's unlikely to just be a patch that's adding some, you know, a few new units or something like that to everybody's game. It would be some kind of DLC pack that people would have to, you know, either buy or it's free and they have to click add to library or whatever on the steam page yeah it's yeah it could be even like a unit expansion sort of thing i don't know call it like an official official steam or making a steam mod official but still leaving it optional or something 
it could also be you know leader personality packs some things like that it's again it's hard to tell at the moment because there's no details of it really yeah well that's nobody seems to have any clue what this might be like i mean the the forum thread just runs the complete gamut especially even yesterday because they just were tweeting about the six-year anniversary of Civ six although if they were trying to time it for that they've already missed it yeah definitely very curious and it's one of those things where if it's if it isn't actually something, if it is like accidental, like we'll just never know what it <laughs> what it actually was because you know they're never going to announce anything. It will never actually show up on Steam, so it'll just sit there, I guess, uh, forever. Yeah, it could end up being unpublished at some point, and then suddenly it's lost to the annals of history. Yeah, vaporware, or yeah, as people are saying, it could just be another dang launcher update and i don't know maybe they have to maybe every time they update the launch because the launcher i think is like consistent for every game in 2k's library right so maybe it's something where every anytime they update the launcher for any game they have to update it for every game so like yeah maybe we will just continue to see you know quote dlcs unquote show up for civ 6 every time a launcher update comes out for any game in the 2k library I'm not sure if launchers show up as DLC. I thought they were a, a dependency or something. I'm, I'm not sure. Well, it is like the second largest vote getter on the uh, the poll on this thread. The first one is modding tools, DLLs, or a final bug fix with 50% of the vote. And then the second one is launcher update with 40% of the vote. And then everything else is like a few percentage points. So plenty of people think that's the case. So I don't know if, if that is something that's precedented or not. Well, considering how it was the new frontier, I'm trying to remember, was the new frontier pass just kind of thrust upon us as a, oh, hey, we're, we're making this new thing? Or did they tease us? I can't remember. Well, according to the, the first post on this thread, uh, in February 2020 on the Steam DB, an app code named Runner appeared, and three months later, it was confirmed to be the Maya and Grand Columbia DLC. Now, I don't know if, if the New Frontier Pass had already been announced by February of 2020, or if, you know, this just showed up and began speculation and then they announced the DLC Pass, you know, a, a month or two later. I don't remember because it was, you know, a couple of years ago. I'm trying to look through the list to see if I can find the pack, but I think, I think the problem is New Frontier Pass is technically a bundle on the, uh, on the Steam page. It doesn't actually show up as a DLC, I don't believe. Uh, probably not for the pass as a whole, but for each of the individual DLC packs, I think they'd show up. Yeah, they do. Yeah, each individual DLC pack and each, even the um, the separate Persona packs is a separate one for Catherine de' Medici and Teddy Roosevelt. They both show up separately as well. Yeah, there's no New Frontier Pass as a single entity. I don't know. I think if we, I think we speculated probably enough, have we? Yeah, probably. things that could end up being uh, left to the annals of history we have a uh, we've been having a thread on on r slash civ in the last month about passing on great people and leaving them to the annals of history and uh, this thread that was originally created by user forensic filer it states the game lets you pass on collecting a great person if you met the goal through people points as opposed to patronage but what is the strategy in passing the only thing they can think of is presenting is preventing a particular victory win does anyone pass on people and i know i do because there are a fair few especially in merchants and occasionally scientists whose effects are shall we say not great yeah it depends on the type 
like I virtually never pass on a general because if I'm investing the points on that, then I want that general for that era, like as soon as possible. Whereas with merchants and scientists, like you say, sometimes their benefits are not that impressive. Yeah, and I think with um, like artists and musicians and uh, writers, like there's not much reason to pass on one because they all just essentially give you the same thing. The only exception maybe with the artists because there's different types of like subtypes of art, like there's portraits and landscapes and sculptures. So I guess if you're trying to theme a museum and you really want like a sculpture, like there's only, I think, three sculptors in the game. So if you want to theme a museum with the three different sculptures from three different artists, like you need to get all three of those artists or you need to trade for it. So that would be a reason to pass for an artist. But for the musicians and the writers, like I don't, you know, either way, you're just getting a great work of writing or a great work of music. And, you know, I don't think it matters which version you get. You also have to consider how quickly the other ships are likely to hit the points threshold. Because if you pass and then you wait for longer than it would have taken you to get the next several great people, as has happened to some people in this thread, uh, that probably wasn't the correct choice then. <laughs> you probably should have just taken the crappy person and farmed the next guy yourself. Because if they're if the AI is that poor at generating that particular great person type, uh, you, you don't want to like wait until the end of the game to get your next chance at that great person type or whatever because you passed on it. Is there a is there overflow on the great people point? So if you do pass and none of the other civs in the game seem to be in any rush to get that next great person, like I think it you. You get like half of your your points back and then you keep accumulating points. But if it fills up again, you've already passed. Right. So when that great person does get taken, does the overflow go towards the next great person or do you just start over at zero? Oh, the overflow keeps going. If you pass on someone, I believe you guess you sacrifice like 20 percent of your total great person points in that amount. But you still keep accumulating them. And if it takes so long, you end up you could end up with like enough points that once someone finally claims that person you passed on you could claim the next three people straight up okay if you accumulate that many points and i have had that happen by not paying attention sometimes you get, you'll be there oh i don't want this merchant and then you don't you you don't go and realize that the rest of the saves have not really built very many commercial hubs you're waiting you know 50 60 70 plus turns for them to be taken and then suddenly you have the next three merchants all for you <laughs> yeah, yeah it's something you have to factor in but yeah there, there are a few that are very shall we say situational that you might want to skip if they're not part of your um but not part of your overall strategy for instance i think one yeah. of the big ones that was listed here was hilda bard of bingen the the scientist that works on a holy site yes exactly that's i think that's about the only one i've ever passed on I think, I've passed your... on I think i've passed on some of the merchants that have been like like raw gold and maybe an envoy or two yeah well and i think there's also like charles darwin who uh has to be adjacent to natural wonders so if you just don't have access to natural wonders Right, they're all in other civs borders that are closed to you. He he's no good to you. So, you know, you might pass on him, for example. And I forget which scientist wants to be surrounded by mountains, and if you have a really flat map, well, not much of a point. Yeah, or you're just in a very flat section of the map and yeah. you know, just like with Charles Darwin, all the big mountain ranges are uh now now you might still want to take that great person just For to denial. deny it. Yeah, just to deny it to the other players, uh, you know, but it's probably not worth it. I guess it comes down to the situation of what your point gain is, what the other what the other saves point gain is. Yeah. How good or bad is would be taking this and having the minor effect versus potentially passing us and 
possibly getting someone better from the same era, because it also, if you're not paying attention and you pass on someone, and suddenly you can be like the next four saves, suddenly you have enough points, and then they just rifle through two eras worth of great people before it comes back around to you. Yeah, something that I definitely missed from Civ Five was the way that great people had like different things that they could be used for. They could create improvements, or you could just like sacrifice them towards golden ages or whatever. Like, I kind of wish Civ Six had some alternate thing that you could just spend the great people on if their regular ability is just completely useless. Like I said, you get Charles Darwin, and like you're playing on a map with no natural wonders, so he literally does nothing. Uh, you know, it'd be nice if. Like, you know, you could just get, like, an improvement, you know, a fancy science improvement or something from him. Yeah, they'd have to think about something, a secondary effect for all these unique people, or for each class of unique, or each class of um, great people that at least has an effect that doesn't potentially work out to be better than the primary effect. Yeah, of. like a lump sum of yield or something like that. You know, a great scientist will just give you a lump sum of science, and a great merchant will give you a lump sum of gold, etc., etc. Yeah, but it has to be, like, not better than... Some of the other, like, there's, I think that's a scientist that's probably only worth, like, what, two Eurekas or something? Yeah, right. Yeah, it would have to be not better than, at least not better than the average case of using the actual great persons. Like, there could be worst case scenarios. Like, maybe, maybe the, you know, again, using Darwin as the example, if there's just a one-tile natural wonder where he's just going to get a small amount of, of science from it, maybe just spending him to create a lump sum of science might be better than that. But, you know, that would be like an edge case. And yeah, it's only going to be very specific. It's going to come down to the, the current situation, I think. Although there are a few that I think as you play the game, there's a few that you start to recognize and recognize they're probably useless for most of your games. So ignoring it would probably be a, a consideration. Yeah, just make more encampments, make more generals, make more units. You're good. That too. You don't also, have to worry I... if you kill your enemies. Also, I don't know if this has ever come up in any of my games, but do you ever run out of great people of a type, or does it just like keep generating like generic great people? No, I've never tried that. Out. You can run out huh. once you get once you get to the information era set of the great people, and if you run out of the information era people, that's it. There are no more of this type. So hypothetically, Phil, if you build too many encampments, you will like run out of uh, of new generals. But, but there's I guess no you're... such thing as too many encampments because yeah. you can keep building units in them. But either way, you'll still have all of the you know modern and information era generals anyway, so they'll still be useful. It's not like you're just going to get stuck with nothing but medieval generals and can never get the later era generals. You're just going to have very early access to the information era ones. Yeah. I actually find the concept of information era generals funny because they're useless if you have atomic era units. Yeah. But there are some there are some unit lines that end in atomic, well, only a couple that end in Atomic Era, but Information Era General or Admiral is useless for those. Like, Information Era Admiral with a Destroyer. Useless. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. But at that point in the game, I mean, uh, you know, whatever. You probably got plenty of use out of your older Generals, hopefully. Or you can keep using them with your Atomic Age stuff. Because yeah. even in late game, like, if you have enough boosts on an Artillery Army, the AI does not stack modifiers well. So you can absolutely use like a group of already to just kill uh, end game units. <laughs> I wouldn't try that against players; they'll probably kill your stuff there. But uh, against the AI, that works fine. Uh, the AI and the lack of air game can't be surprised. I think they gave it a little bit, but like it doesn't. It won't like overwhelm your anti air, and it's not that hard to have at least some coverage. Yeah, like groups of already would just like wreck 
pretty much anything once you have the promotions and general bonus and army on them it's too much too much well, for the ai at that point i mean you're also like shooting from what four five tiles away so... yeah i mean typically it's three to four uh but the ones with the range promotion that can pull off i mean at that point the only you know real uh bottleneck to using them is just make sure that you have a spotting units out in front so you can actually see the tiles you're trying to shoot yeah and i mean like game wars when you have like the you get the movement bonus when starting in your territory you get the general movement bonus you get other movement bonuses like even infantry there are especially given the quality of roads in the late game it's not very hard to move an infantry from one city to the next city and then because artillery get move and shoot with generals even without the promotion move the artillery into range and then just like shell the city down like almost the next turn after you took the previous one like you might have to heal units or whatever, but if you have enough units, you can cycle that even. Uh, so wars go very fast at that age, even if you're just using artillery. If you're using air, then I mean, maybe it's even a little bit faster, but not much faster because <laughs> you can almost take a city a turn uh, per front slash uh, army group with just the artillery. So, you know, you can go a little faster there, but not much faster because you're, you're so fast anyway. And if you do have air units, then you probably don't even have to worry about spotting for the artillery. Because if you can, you know, station that air unit anywhere in the vicinity yeah. of your target, like they have, they have like what seven, five or seven tiles of visibility or something like that, ten tiles. So yeah, just having a fighter unit somewhere in the area will give you probably plenty of visibility to see your next target. It just doesn't matter anyway, because like the infantry see fine and they move fine on roads in the late game. So. You just like move them in the general direction of the next city, and that's that's good enough. You're you're gonna be able to see it. I wonder if I should go into this into this uh, thread and go reply. Who cares about skipping? Who cares about skipping great people? Just get all the great generals. That's all you need. Yeah, exactly. They'll ask you why I'm posting on a different account. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think redditors would recognize. Yeah. All right. So uh, next thread by Steve G seven hundred on Siphonatics. What's up with warrior monks? Yeah, I see these every once in a while. These questions about warrior monks, and the AI has a hard on for them. So good luck getting them in the first place, as many people have noted in this thread. Oh, this is from twenty nineteen. Yeah, but I mean the, the topic. <laughs> it's an evergreen topic in a sense. Uh, and people have pointed out that you can get them significantly stronger with promotions. Uh, but you can also, like in the time frame that takes, you can also typically get the next era of units. So like they're usable throughout the game, but they don't really feel, at least to me, better than contemporary units with the general. Like, it, it, But you have to go out of your way to get them with the religious investment, which is questionable. They're also hard to amass early when they're at their best. And even then, they're like, they're not that much better than the swordsman. Like swordsman with promotions in a general is pretty strong too. So I, I don't know. Yeah, I think I've only ever used warrior monks once, so I actually need a reminder on what the heck they actually do. They're, they just have different promotions than other units. Yeah, buy them with table. they start at, I think, 35 and 3. It might be 14 and 3 these days. I'm not sure if they've been buffed. Oh, they start with I've... 35 melee and 3 movements. The thing is, their promotion tree kind of gives them... I'm trying to figure out what it is. It's like one side of the promotion tree that just gives them more combat strength, and the other side of the promotion tree is... Uh, it's special effects, I believe. Uh, I yeah. was thinking that warrior monks were like the unit that like got stronger as the eras progressed. What, is, wasn't there a unit that does that? Like, is it something you get from a? Kong. 
that's you get that from like Nihon, a city state is, or something right yeah it's, that's the lahore city state unit the nihon and that okay. goes up that base comma strength goes up by 15 once you build a barracks armory and military academy for the first time so yeah so it's full promotion they can get up to 65 combat strength and four movement things decent but 65 is kind of where it tops out and even when you add army that's what 82 yeah not great because look, if you take a standard melee unit and you give it all of its promotions, then it's also going to be pretty good. Yeah, with an extra movement, two attacks, that sort of thing. Right? Yeah. I think at best the warrior monk gets. Actually, the the warrior monk does get can get a second attack. It gets religion spread on the feasting, and it also becomes invisible. Like a musket's already base fifty five, so like, <laughs> and you can yeah. make armies with those too. You can give them promotions to make them uh, better in combat. Yeah, the, the warrior monks fall off pretty quickly because of that. You, like you need a you need a tier two promotion just to give a ten extra strength to forty five or to fifty, whatever it is. You said they yeah. go up up to sixty five. Yeah, with like every promotion for strength. Okay. Yeah. So it makes them better than a musketman, but not as good as a an infantry. Yeah. Well, if yeah, fully promoted. Yeah, but that requires you also to get to rank four promotion on a unit. Yeah, because you're comparing a, an unpromoted unit to a fully uh, promoted unit which is a little unfair you can promote muskets too right I'm, I'm just trying to put it into like context and like muskets can get into 62 melee strength very quickly by taking one promotion right yeah it's a unit that in theory looks like it would give you a bit of a spike but i think the the cost of it because it's also going to be presumably at that point in time warrior monks are going to be competing with the faith needing to be spent on missionaries and apostles and, anyway, and, probably, and also probably buildings. Yeah, and those two. And, and potentially patronage of great people. Yeah, there's a lot of things for faith at that stage of the game, so unless you have massive faith gain, and on top of that you'll have to you know, beat the AI to it. Yeah, you probably have to be playing as a leader or civ that has some good bonus towards accumulating uh, faith yields in order for that to really be viable. You just gotta make them work before it gets too late, otherwise you're better off with normal units. And the problem is they just fall off too early. Like it's even what late medieval is probably when they start falling off, especially now that we have um, Yeah. Now that we have the more steps of units as well available. Yeah, they're probably like still a little better than medieval, but not by noticeably. Like not by enough to make it worth. Because you can upgrade those medieval units. I mean they might still have a specific use because if you can Use your other standard units to kill and then, or not to kill, to wound and then bring in the warrior monk to get the kill if you want to get the religion spread from that promotion, for instance. But um, that's be, uh, true. That's a situational sort of thing. That's it, it, true. It's basically trying to do what what uh, what Basil does as a as yeah. a civ as a civ unique. I don't know. That's a lot of investment for that. It's not that hard to convert your own cities when it's uncontested. But that's still also only when the warrior monk like wins combats. It's not like when other units around the warrior monk wins com win combats, right? Yeah, yeah you could set that up to I mean, with Basil, it's any unit, <laughs> and you get that yeah. bonus, so it's really powerful. But I think it's a bit odd. Like as soon as I see that, I was like, mm, again, high base, high base strength. I guess is okay. If an AI gets it early and you're trying to fight them, then okay, you might have a couple of issues. Well, and it would have to like get promotions on it because you know its starting strength isn't that scary to classical units. It's only once it has the promotions that it starts to become a problem. Well, I think 40. 
I think also the AI getting it, especially on a harder difficulty, can be a little bit threatening because the AIs are, to be fair, like crazy good at religious play in Civ Six and at generating large chunks of faith. So they'll be able to afford them and afford them fairly early. So I mean, you don't want to be killing your units, but like it's not it, it, before it's promoted. It's not better than a swordsman, right? So like if you are actually fighting it properly, you, you can probably kill it before it gets promotions. Yeah, I guess if you're not leaving a bunch of exposed like archers or crossbowmen out where they can just easily pick them off, you're probably good. If you, if you do that versus high level AI, you're probably not winning anyway. Because <laughs> in those early wars, the AI is a lot of stuff. So if you get if you get crap picked off, then it's going to be bad news. I think the other thing does, um, again, the comparison to the Nihong, I think, is also probably the biggest thing because they both have basically have the same cost and same maintenance. They're both like they start at 200 faith and have that slightly scaling cost as you go. Obviously, the, the Warrior Monk has the higher base thing, but by the time you're probably at the point of getting the Nihongs, you might already have a barrack, so they're already at 40 strength, and they already act kind of like a like a melee unit, so they have the melee bonuses against anti-cav and all that, and it doesn't take very long for them to get even more, because the armory's not that far away, and suddenly they're 55. Like, it's uh, kind of... The Warrior Monks almost possibly feel underpowered, with the exception of maybe having that extra movement, but even then, it's... Yeah, I guess it's hard to get faith fast enough to get a bunch of them really early <coughs> when it would matter. In the early game when it matters, yeah, because late yeah. game their base strength is nowhere. Whereas if you have Lahore, your Nihongs are coming out at seventy, and you can start making armies with them right away. I think well, they'd be obnoxious if they got tuned to be more viable, though. So I don't know. It's like if if you got them to the where they scaled up with Era or something, so that, like now you can just build this one unit the entire game, or or if you yeah. made them stronger in the early game, they'd be completely oppressive. So I don't know what you could do to them to make them... Because yeah, even early mid-game-ish with a human player using them, they are already a little obnoxious. <laughs> so... Yeah, I, mean, I feel like... That... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, it's great when that obnoxious is on your side and you're allied with him, but uh, yeah, you wouldn't want to fight that army. What are, what are they considered for benefiting from generals? Don't. I... Yeah. They're oh, then they're worse than I yeah. was thinking. Yeah, they're no... They don't have an era. It's the same okay, thing. Yeah, never mind. Like they, I, I consider them just worse than melee pretty quickly. Then, because now, like we, we were talking about, I, I was like picturing the great generals benefiting both the muskets and this thing. Now the musket is just stronger directly, as long as it's within range of a general and has one promotion. It is already more powerful than the warrior monk at max promotions, and it's I... only going to get better with like you know it's uh, boosted uh, city district attack and being able to take range attacks better and you know it eventually also gets the ability to attack twice like it's just a better melee unit than the warrior monk at musket already <laughs> i feel like the warrior monk has like one very very specific like niche use case and that is that you are a religious focused civ that doesn't have access to iron and you need a melee unit that can compete with someone else's swordsman. You're never going to know that in time to get them, though. Right, yeah, exactly. It's a bonus if you've gone into a faith-based build, like if you're trying to do the religious win condition. Yeah, I, yeah, I, mean, I guess that's the time you would pick it, because then you're actually generating the faith. You might get some utility out of it. And, you know, probably, like, the, I guess the, the big benefit of them is it's on, like, a different, like, yield pipeline than actual units so you know ideally you should be pumping out regular military units with your production in your cities and then spending the faith on these warrior monks as a supplementary unit because you don't have to build them with production in your cities. so your cities are then free to make actual military units to support them or vice versa 
I guess. I mean, you could build ranged while building warrior monks. Yeah. So, like Mackie was saying, it's it's a bonus for a you know militaristic religious you know sieve. With the exception that you then have to invest into producing the religious side of the stuff early on. Right, but if you're playing a religious your production. Yeah, but if you're playing a religious, you know, especially going for religious victory, you're doing that anyway. So I mean, like if you get to the point where your religion is like up and running, right? And like the only thing left to do is is take this last uh belief and it's like, oh, I'll take warrior monks, because now I can just have extra military units because I'm gonna need them because I wasn't building military units earlier. Uh, because I was too bu- busy building religious stuff. So now I can get a very large, you know, competitively strength army u- uh, up and running very quickly for some, you know, medieval conquest or whatever. But again, that's a very specific niche case <laughs> where, like, you know, you're not going to f- probably fall into that. Like, that's something you had to have planned out in advance, in which case there's probably better things that you could have done. I almost used to wonder why there is that wonder that gives you warrior monks because isn't that like kind of mid medieval <laughs> almost like too late for them to show up at least with their um with their current strength yeah especially considering how long it takes to build a wonder so you not only have to tech to it but you have to actually spend the you know 20 to 40 turns to build the dang thing assuming you even meet the prerequisites for it because i think that's one of those religious wonders where it has some specific prerequisites that you're not necessarily going to meet you, you get the monks as Kotoku in, in the medieval with Unlocked with Divine Rights. You get the monks as long as you've founded a religion or there is a majority religion for that player or city. So, you know, as long as it's not a complete pagan place, you get them. But I mean, Divine Rights, it's already kind of getting a bit late. You need to already have like, civil service and all that as well. So Yeah, and even then you get like, what is it, like three of them? Four of them. So, eh. No, great. I think it's like the equivalent of well, 800 plus whatever the scaling went out up to, so maybe like 900, 950 faith in units. I mean, yay, I guess, but they... <laughs> right, for how much of an investment in production towards a wonder that, you know, you're not spending that production on other things or other wonders that are going to give you other things that, that will be more useful. Yeah, so it's like 700 production, but at that point you're, you probably get muskets and I think they're... Actually, let me look that up. Where's a musket at that point, if it will click? Only takes 240 production. So you could probably get three muskets for the price of that wonder. And they probably work better than the four warrior monks. Yes. Yeah, they're just better units at that point. Said enough bad things of the monks, have we? <laughs> Certainly sounds like. Apparently we've said enough things for one episode. Uh, so this has been episode 411 of the Polycast. Uh, I'm Makalua and with me as usual, Mega Bears fan. Uh, Warrior Monk's bad. The <laughs> me and team. I finally found a military unit you shouldn't build. Yes, co-host Christy. Guess I'm canceling that trip to Nepal to, you know, become a monk. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe they can do better. Maybe. And everybody out of the pool. Yay. Wait, we left the ladder in, right? Yes, this isn't The Sims. Yay. <laughs> Civilization 3, 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 sound clips. Copyright Take-Two Interactive. Copyright the Polycast at thepolycast.net.